Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. Within days, Americans will decide whether or not to risk another four years with Donald Trump. Before we do, we thought it was important to hear from somebody who knows Donald Trump best and who can speak about the kind of person he is. Mary Trump is Donald Trump's niece, daughter of his older brother, Freddie. She's also a clinical psychologist. She appeared earlier on the Bill Press Pod in conversation with Dr. Bandy Lee, who inspired and helped organize our special series on the dangerous case of Donald Trump. I recently interviewed Dr. Trump on Zoom as part of my monthly lecture series at the Hill Center on Capitol Hill about the recent best-selling book she wrote about her uncle, Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man. The picture she paints of Donald Trump and the danger she warns us all about is so scary I wanted to share it with all of you before November 3rd. So here, as a special edition of the Bill Press Pod, is my interview with Mary Trump at the Hill Center. Dr. Mary Trump, good to see you. Thank you for joining us at the Hill Center. Oh, it's, it's honestly, it's my honor to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, welcome. And I want to remind everybody, of course, we're going to be talking about your book, Too Much and Never Enough. Uh, I've got to say it is a great read. I'm sure it was painful to write, uh, maybe painful to live through, uh, but I highly recommend it. Uh, so before we start, Dr. Trump, how about if you just, because maybe not everybody knows, tell us about your credentials as, as a mental health professional. Um, I got a master's degree in psychology um, I don't even remember when. It was a while ago. <laughs> and then uh, after that, uh, I decided to jump in um, and get a PhD, which I did um, at the Dinner Institute of Advanced Psychological Studies, which is associated with Adelphi University on Long Island in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked for a year at the admissions ward um, of Manhattan Psychiatric Center on Wards Island in Manhattan, which yeah. was fascinating <laughs> and uh, quite exhausting. Um, I, I taught, I, I decided after that for various reasons, I kind of had nothing to do with psychology and some that did, uh, that I wanted to take a step back. Um, and I taught instead of, you know, working with patients, which I had also been doing in local clinics, uh, I decided just to focus on teaching and research uh, for a few years. And then uh, eventually I just decided to leave the profession entirely. Uh, so it's been a while since I've been an actively a psychologist, but um, between my training and the teaching, I taught cor- courses that were <laughs> turned out to be very relevant, like psychopathology, trauma and developmental psychology, which which came in handy when I was trying to write the uh, at least the family part of the book. So the title, Too Much and Never Enough, but the subtitle, 
How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man. Were you exaggerating to make a point, or do you really believe that, that uh, your Uncle Donald is the world's most dangerous man, and why? Unfortunately, it's not an exaggeration. Um, now, obviously, my, my grandparents didn't set out <laughs> to uh, produce somebody as dangerous as Donald is, but uh, what they did do was uh, raise a child who ended up having severe uh, psychopathologies. So um, if he weren't in a position of power, he would still be dangerous, but it would be more just to himself and the people around him. Uh, in modern history, the person at the head of the American government has been traditionally referred to as the world's most powerful person, uh, the so-called leader of the free world. And unfortunately, Donald is now in that position. So if you put those two things together, his severe psychological disorders and the power to which he has access, we get somebody who is indeed the world's most dangerous person. One takeaway for me from the book is you really cannot understand Donald unless you know and understand his father, Fred. Yep. Um, you say early in the book, uh, identify Fred as a sociopath, mm -hmm. and you um, say that those traits that you would find, behavior you find in the sociopath include, quote, lack of empathy, a facility for lying, an indifference to right and wrong, abusive behavior, and a lack of interest in the rights of others. Bingo. Right? Sounds familiar. <laughs> so did we elect the father <laughs> or elect the son? Oh, we, uh, we got some combination of both, that's for sure. Um, you know, in the book, as you know, I don't directly diagnose Donald because it's technically impossible. Like, diagnosis is a technical process that you cannot go through with somebody who's not your patient. So, um, and I don't think it's necessary. What's much more important is that people pay attention to his behavior. Um, and I do point out uh, certain symptoms he has that uh, fall under the rubric of uh, some personality disorders. But I also think it's important to look at the bigger picture because there's so much overlapping comorbidity with him, uh, you know, because it's not just the potential personality disorders. He also um, is alleged to drink 12 Diet Cokes a day. And that suggests to me he has a substance abuse disorder. That's a lot of caffeine, you know, and it, it clearly is going to impact your functioning in one way or the another. He doesn't sleep enough, um, you know, so he has the physical issues that, that exacerbate the psychological issues and vice versa. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a complex picture. Um, but again, if we, if we boil it down to observable behavior, I think that's mo more useful. Uh, and it seems, would you agree that um, Fred, the father, um, encouraged, enabled, and ended up funding uh, the kind of behavior attributes of Donald Trump that we all suffer from today? Yeah, and it's, it's, a, it's, tra it's tragic um, because my father and Donald and their siblings suffered mightily um, as with the, their father as their parent because he had very uh, narrow ideas of what it meant to be a man, of what it meant to be strong, um, and what was allowed in terms of experiencing human emotion. Uh, so 
when Donald was very young, my, my grandmother became ill and was essentially unavailable to him for about a year. He was two and a half. That's an incredibly crucial developmental period. And in order to deal with the fear and loneliness and sense of abandonment, which nobody did anything to help assuage because my grandfather was completely uninterested in dealing with a two and a half year old. He developed these very severe defense mechanisms, which as he grew older, manifested as bullying behavior, indifference to other people, et cetera, et cetera. The problem is my grandfather actually valued those things. Mm. Whereas my dad was sensitive and kind, which things my grandfather disdained, you know, Donald was always pretending to be a tough guy. And because my grandfather valued those, they hardened into character traits or flaws, as the case may be. And that's largely why Donald is the way he is. Plus, my grandfather also subscribed to the power of positive thinking. So everything always had to be great, perfect, the best, fantastic, which made it impossible to uh, leave room for things like pain and sadness, etc. So it was an awful, awful way to grow up. Uh, and one of the last things that um, that... Uh, your father would appreciate or, or would tolerate, I guess, was any a sign of weakness, right? Weakness was to be avoided, right? Yeah. Oh, at all costs. Right. At all costs. And, and, and the other thing that came through is cruelty. I mean, you actually say that for Donald, cruelty is the point and that he learned that from his father, that taking pleasure in humiliating others. Learned it yeah. as a kid and still does it today. Yeah, right. um, exactly. And, you know, first of all, it's important to understand that it's not just that my grandfather, you know, made it clear to his children that weakness wasn't tolerated. It's the way he defined weakness. You know, being kind was weak. Being sensitive was weak. Being generous was weak. Um, being sick in any way whatsoever was weak, um, whether it was an addiction or um, you know, some other kind of physical illness. And we see how that's playing out with Donald's response to COVID. But in terms of the cruelty, it also, it's a power play for him as well. You know, it's a way to assert his uh, superiority to people he believes are weaker than he is. Right. Um, so you admit, do you have not, you did not try to do a diagnosis of, of Donald Trump? But from what you have seen and, and, and we've all seen, do you believe he is mentally imbalanced? Oh, there's no doubt. Um, and what, what's so frustrating is it seems that that's been clear for a very, very long time. Um, so even if we just look at, um, I'm going to use the term narcissism colloquially, okay? Right. But if we look at his self-aggrandizement, um, especially for those of us who know how ridiculous it is because he's always been such a failure as a business person. Um, and we look at his mendacity, like there's nothing um, balanced about those things. So even if we forget about the lack of empathy and the impulsivity, just those two things alone, um, you know, because he was, he was uh, sort of pathologically self-aggrandizing and lying his head off long before he got to the Oval Office. So it's just kind of strange to me that, that more people didn't focus on that. Right. Um, when he, knowing him, when he started to 
run for president. What did you think about that? <laughs> oh, man, <I'm, laughs> I didn't take it seriously because I, I didn't think he did. He'd done it before, you yeah. know. It was also it was always a, a, a money making grift. It was a way to get attention to his brand and elevate it. Uh, you know, free advertising and and unfortunately, uh, the media cooperated the way it always has uh, with Donald, and the Republican Party ran such an abysmal um, primary that it gave him a lot of openings. Uh, so. I still, though, <laughs> didn't take it seriously. Obviously, after he got the nomination, I was more concerned because even if he had a one percent chance, that was cutting it too close. Um, but I, I was at a disadvantage. I knew I had known him my entire life and I was a New Yorker. <laughs> so I didn't understand how people outside of New York City viewed him. Uh, so now I know. Uh, I take it that you did not vote for him. No, um, no. I, and honestly, I, I don't know what I would have done if I'd been a Republican. I'd like to think that I would not have been able to uh, pull the lever for him. But I've been a Democrat since uh, I first voted for Michael Dukakis. So uh, it, it wouldn't have happened. And I wouldn't have voted for any Republican candidate. You talk in the book about you about you describe your, the family visit to the White House for your aunt's birthday party. Is that the last time you saw Uncle Donald? It is indeed. Yeah. Um, I think that's going to continue to be the case. <laughs> it was an awkward moment for several reasons, right? Tell, tell us a little about it. Yeah, it was very stressful. With the exception of my Aunt Marianne, um, I hadn't seen my other aunt or my two uncles or any of my cousins since Ivanka's wedding in 2009. So, um, I went into it with great trepidation. I didn't know what to expect. I knew why I had been invited, but I didn't know how anybody else would react. Um, so we get there and it was only about 30 people. We went to the Oval Office. We did a little tour of the residence. And, uh, but I didn't actually say hello to Donald until we were heading into the dining room and he was standing at the entrance greeting people. And when he saw me, whom he had not seen in uh, eight years, he pointed at me and he said, I specifically asked for you to be invited. And I laughed because it was completely untrue. But at the same time, because, you know, Donald can be superficially charming. Um, it, it sort of made me feel good that he went to the trouble to tell that lie. So um, it kind of broke the ice a little bit, but I, I had very little interaction with him for the rest of the meal because in the Trump family, you sit down, you say their ridiculous prayer, you eat the meal, we took pictures with him, and then we left. Right. Uh, but the moment that I remember is when I think it was your uncle Robert, no, it was just Aunt Marianne, who uh. told the story about the mashed potatoes. That's something that really stuck with Donald, right? Tell us. Yeah. Uh, yes, you're right. Um, that actually was sort of the pivotal moment in the meal for a couple of different reasons. This is a story that has been told on occasion throughout the years um, since my dad died in 1981. And I think it's always Marianne who brings it up. And it's almost always at the beginning of a meal. 
And she tells the story, I think, partially to bring my dad in, you know, uh, so he is with us in some way. Um, but also she tells it deliberately to get under Donald's skin. The story is this. When Donald was about seven, um, he, the five kids were hanging out in what we call the breakfast room in my grandparents' house, which is right near the kitchen, waiting for my grandmother to finish cooking. And she's putting food on the, meat, uh, the table and going back and forth. And Donald is in the process of absolutely tormenting his little brother, Robert, who's getting more and more upset. And my dad and Marianne, who were quite a bit older, can't get him to stop just being a horrible brother to this little kid who was probably five at the time. My grandmother couldn't get him to stop. And it was just getting worse and worse and worse. So finally, my dad was at his wit's end and he picked up the bowl of mashed potatoes my grandmother had just put on the table, which must have been huge because there were seven of them. And he dumped it right on Donald's head. And because it was so spontaneous and so unexpected, everybody just burst into laughter, except Donald. And I think it's the first time in his life that he experienced that kind of humiliation. And he experienced it at the hands of my dad, which probably, you know, turned the knife a little deeper. Um, and based on the, his reaction to that, the telling of that story, Decades later, and it's always the same reaction. He sits back, he crosses his arms tightly, he pouts, and he looks down. He's never gotten over it. And that's a really bad sign. You know, at, at 72, you should be able to laugh about this family story that happened when you were seven. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back and resume our conversation with Dr. Mary Trump. After this word from the sponsor of today's podcast with Mary Trump, the Teamsters Union, the International Brotherhood of Teamsters under President Jim Hoffa, the largest and most diverse of all American labor unions, 1.4 million members representing just about every profession you can imagine in the American economy, as they say, everybody from A to Z, from airline pilots to zookeepers. Check out their website at teamster.org. We thank the Teamsters for their great work and their support of the Bill Press Pod. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. 
Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. And now back to our conversation with Dr. Mary Trump. Uh, so we've seen Donald Trump now for four years. Um, has he? Have you seen that he has changed uh, since he's become president? Um, has he gotten better or has he gotten worse in terms of his behavior traits? He hasn't changed at all. Uh, you know, he's not somebody who evolves. Um, you know, maybe he's deteriorated in some ways, but, you know, I, I don't have access to that because the the thing that's changed uh, are the circumstances. He's, for the first time in his life, in a position where he's being held accountable, although clearly not enough. He's under scrutiny, although clearly not enough. And he is not always able to get his way. Um, and we see how that plays out in situations that he cannot control completely, like a debate, like a town hall. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think over time, he will, his behavior will get worse because the circumstances are more dire. And he's under the kinds of stress he's never been under before. And he also knows that um, he's in a lot of trouble if he can't steal this election. Right. Uh, do you think he's fit to be president of the United States? He's never been fit to be president of the United States. Um, and I, I mean, that's just by virtue of his, uh, you know, leaving the psych psychological stuff aside. That's by virtue of the fact that he's incompetent. He's uh, has no intellectual curiosity what, whatsoever. He understands nothing about the Constitution or how the American government works or foreign policy or anything, quite honestly. And, you know, we all grow up hearing any, but, you know, America, one of Amer the, the great things about America is that anybody can grow up to be president. I always thought, though, that that implied anybody who works hard, anybody who becomes a dedicated civil servant. Apparently, I was wrong. They literally meant anybody. Right. So um, we, we talk about uh, the mental imbalance of Donald Trump. To what impact, what, what kind of an impact has that had on the mental health of the rest of America? That is an excellent question. Um, and, you know, it was bad enough before this year. Just the, the constant onslaught of um, his transgressions um, against uh, norms, traditions, against basic human decency, the unrelenting cruelty that People seem to keep forgetting that, that, I mean, I know it's in the news again now, but it's never stopped. We have never stopped kidnapping and torturing children at the border. Okay. So none of this, although the news may not cover it, it doesn't go away. It just accumulates, right? And now since COVID, we're in an entirely new realm of horrors. I mean, this country 
in the next 6, 12, 18 months is headed towards the worst, almost universal mental health crisis in its history that we aren't prepared to deal with at the best of times. And now we've got to deal with it uh, in the times of uh, of Donald Trump. I want to I want to come back to you ask you a little bit about his success as a businessman, because you talk a lot about that. Mm -hmm. um, to, to put it mildly, I guess, he is nowhere near as successful as he brags about being. Uh, right. And you demonstrate, I mean, you illustrate that in the book. I mean, it was bas yeah. it's basically a, a huge con job, right? Yeah, because he's not been successful in business at all. And, and not just not successful, he's been a massive failure. Um, what he has done successfully is perpetrator that fraud on the American people. But, you know, he's done it with a lot of help. Um, we, thanks to the brilliant reporting, the continually brilliant reporting of Suzanne Craig and Russ Buechner, we know that in the course of my grandfather's lifetime, he gave Donald in excess of $410 million. And that's not including what Donald inherited from my grandfather's estate after my grandfather died. We know that banks continue to loan him tens, if not hundreds of million dollars, of dollars, not because he was successful, but because he was failing so miserably and they needed to prop him up so that the properties they were financing didn't lose all of their value. You know, we need to remember that when he hired me to write his third book, which was called um, The Art of the Comeback, he was receiving a $450,000 a month allowance from the banks just for his personal expenses so he could perpetuate the illusion that he was a wealthy man of, of means. So at every turn, he's failed, he's been bailed out, uh, and it's disgraceful. And what has blown my mind is the extent to which it continues to happen. What I found stunning was the extent to which he was able to con the banks, the investors, and the media. Uh, and they all went along with it, and they all played this game and, and, and pro as you say, propped him up. Didn't he actually con you a little bit when he talked to you into writing uh, that third book of his? Um, I don't know if he conned me. I mean, I think it was a it was a real offer. The problem was that um, he didn't tell his publisher <laughs> that he was hiring me. So uh, that didn't set well with them when they finally found out about it. So it wasn't an actual. So, yeah, I guess he did a little bit because we didn't have a contract and there was no negotiating and he paid me once, but then never again. And so like there was no no negotiating, uh, not just a fee, but was I going to receive any royalty share of the royalties? So, yeah, it was a bit of a con. And um the reason he wanted me to write it was also untrue, because uh, he told me he wanted me he wanted me to write it because he thought um, I was a good writer. But it turns out he hired me because he had uh, seen a letter that I'd written in support of somebody, and uh, he he knew he realized that um, I was good at making other people look good. <laughs> so that was the uh, the main requirement. Uh, and you do talk about the fact that. Uh... You had a hard time getting paid in the beginning, too. Which I did, indeed. <laughs> another sign of it. So we are living in the age of COVID with Donald Trump in the White House. What have we learned about Donald Trump uh, through his response 
to the COVID pandemic? Well, some of us, it appears, haven't learned anything, but uh, hopefully the majority of us have learned he doesn't care about you. He will continue to put American lives at risk if it suits his purposes. And for various reasons, it does suit his purposes. So um, people need to stop listening to him. People start need to start listening to mental, sorry, not mental health, uh, you know, people like Dr. Fauci and other epidemiologists and any medical doctor who understands how you deal with something like COVID-19. Wear a mask, social distance. It's not that difficult. Um, and hopefully they've we've also learned that because of his willful mismanagement, which I believe at this point is criminal, he has put this country at risk of further economic damage. He's put, as I said, many more American lives at risk. And he has extended the period of time in which we will not be able to get back to any semblance of normality. And in some regard, that is also criminal. Is he capable of ever admitting that he was wrong? No, and that's one of the reasons we're in this terrible situation. At the beginning, um, when only he and a few other people knew about COVID, because of how weakness was perceived in my family, he was not going to associate himself with a deadly virus, and he was going to just pretend that it wasn't happening and hope for the best. When that became impossible to do, um, in order to deal with it properly, he would have had to course correct, which in his mind would have meant admitting he was wrong. That couldn't happen. So what does he do? He downplays it. He pretends it's not a big deal. He tells people the economy is more important. Um, and after he's he got COVID and apparently recovered, he then doubled down by telling people not to let it dominate you. If you're just tough enough, like he is, you'll be just fine. Um, again, it's criminal. Um, and it's all because he can't ever admit his, he's made a mistake and he can't ever admit that anything isn't other than great. I pulled a couple of quotes from the book out that really popped out at me. Um, uh, let me just share a couple of them with our, with our audience and get you to, to comment. Uh, one is, quote, he knows deep down that he is nothing of what he claims to be. So basically, you're saying he sort of knows that it's all fake? On a deep level. Um, you know, I, I don't, it's certainly not something he goes around acknowledging to himself uh, because right. that would be impossible for him to do. But we cannot underestimate how much energy Donald expends trying to keep other people from finding out who he really is, but also from protecting himself from the knowledge of who he really is. And who he really is, is a terrified little boy. Yeah, uh, and in fact, that's the, uh, the, the second quote I wanted to read. Um, uh, Donald today is as much as he was at three years old, incapable of growing, learning, uh, unable to regulate his emotions, moderate his responses, or take in and synthesize information. Wow. Yeah, and I, I would he say is that what he, he is at 74 what he was at three years old. Yeah, and that alone is disqualifying. <laughs> right. Uh, and then this is uh, uh, 
a quote that scared the hell out of me. And you talk about, well, I guess, let me introduce this by this way. One, one of the points you make is, what's stunning also is how he gets, a, how he has always gotten away with everything and still does today, right? Yeah. And so you point out here that today we're in a situation where the country finds itself in this situation. The government as it is currently constituted including the executive branch, half of Congress, and the majority of the Supreme Court is entirely in the service of protecting Donald Trump's ego. That has become its entire purpose. I think it's hard to argue uh, against that position. I'm not arguing against it. I'm just- uh, No, I know you're not. <laughs> on how unhealthy it is for this yeah. for the country. Uh, yeah. How many, um, people, how many people go along with that, right? Yeah, and uh, I think it's in part because uh, one of the things uh, my grandfather did is he turned Donald into somebody who's eminently useful to stronger, more powerful people. So if we consider just how many people are benefiting enormously from his position in the Oval Office, from Bill Barr and Mitch McConnell to his children to um, I, on down the line, you know, Mike Pompeo, uh, mm -hmm. pretty much every every elected Republican at this point, um, they have a lot of incentive uh, to to do that service for him because it it also is to their benefit. Uh, and when I see uh, Trump at these rallies where he clearly thrives on the adoration uh, of the crowd. Uh, another line in the book that struck me is, he knows he has never been loved. Yeah. Um, somebody who is deeply loved as a child does not need to go in front of a bunch of strangers to feel better about himself. Um, it's it's an addiction at this point for him. Uh, and so you pointed out several times in the book and in our uh, in our conversation here, that uh, it's incapable, he's incapable of admitting he made a mistake, incapable of admitting he was wrong. So what happens if he loses on November 3rd? How's he handle that? Not well. <laughs> <laughs> um, what do you expect? He, it depends. Um, he's good, he'll, if, if, if Vice President Biden wins, Donald will, he won't accept the results. And to which I say, who cares? It's not up to him. He doesn't decide what election results are legitimate or not, ignore him. The problem, however, is if it's close. So the safest and only good scenario is if Joe Biden and Kamala Harris win in an enormous landslide. So even somebody as corrupt as Bill Barr can't you know, try to pretend that it was rigged somehow in uh, Biden's favor. Um, anything short of that, though, uh, even if, if we don't get the results right away, could be potentially catastro uh, catastrophic because it's important to realize Donald is already cheating to steal this election. You know, by telling people in the middle of a pandemic that voting uh, by mail is suspect, by telling people before the election, that if Joe Biden wins, it will have been a rigged process. Um, by encouraging his armed supporters to go protect the polls, which is voter intimidation, he's cheating. Um, 
So it, we should not be surprised and we should be prepared for the fact that either on Election Day or after, if it's close, if we don't get the re uh, results right away, um, a there there could be potentially dangerous uh, situations. Right. So, oh. so um, I have read um, a lot of reviews, a lot of comments about the book and, of course, read the book um, and your critics make a point. Uh, I'd like you to give you a chance to respond to sure. that. It is true, as you show in the book, that your family, particularly your father, Freddie, your mother, you and your brother got royally screwed by the Trump family. We basically ended up with nothing and they walked away with all, all the dough. So yeah. uh, to, to what extent is your book uh, payback for um, for getting cut out of all the Trump wealth? It's not at all, um, because for a couple of reasons, I um, this happened 20 years ago. So um, I've lived I've lived a life, you know, in those 20 years. So I'm certainly not hanging on to any, you know, thirst for revenge. It would have been made my life deeply unpleasant. And, you know, I wasn't going to do that. Secondly, you know this, you write a book, you have absolutely no idea how well it's going to do um, if, if you're going to make a dime or even make your advance, you know. So it's a risky proposition in terms of, you know, getting uh, payback. Um, and in terms of revenge, I'm not a vengeful person. I wrote this book as an American, very concerned American citizen. Um, and, you know, I am suing them for fraud not because I'm out for revenge, but because I'm out for justice. I think it's entirely appropriate for me to ask my aunts and uncles to return my stolen property. Right. Um, well, I have to thank you again, Dr. Mary Trump, for joining us here at the Hill Center. Uh, and I, again, uh, to all of you, I want to recommend the book Too Much and Never Enough. Um, it is only about 200 pages, my perfect length for a book. <laughs> and also, it's an incredible read. Uh, a story of a very dysfunctional family. Uh, and Mary Trump, I'm sorry that you had to live through it. And I'm sorry that today we have to live through uh, the product of this dysfunctional, dysfunctional family. So thank you so much for writing the book and thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure for me. I really appreciate it. And there you have it, our interview with Mary Trump uh, at the Hill Center about her new book, Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man. Thank you so much for joining us for this special edition of the Bill Press Pod. And if you haven't already done so, this is your chance to subscribe uh, to the Bill Press Pod by wherever you're listening to this podcast. Just pull up Bill Press Pod, click on subscribe, and you are in as a regular member. Appreciate your being there. We'll be back on Friday with our weekly roundtable with three crack Washington political reporters to look back at the news of the week. Between now and then, please stay strong, stay safe, stay sane, and get out and vote as early as you can. And we'll see you again on the next edition of the Bill Press Live.